We have been endeavoring to make our way through the entire book of Romans, a fantastic book. It's already had an impact in our lives and in our church, and it's been a study in the amazing grace of God. And we've come through the first five chapters, which we use the example of the courthouse of God. That's where God showed us that we were guilty and all have sinned and that we needed a savior, that we needed a substitutionary sacrifice. And we use big words like justification and propitiation. And that's what the first five chapters were. In this courthouse, we were found guilty. Our works fell short. We didn't do everything like God wanted us to do it. But then God steps in and gives us his grace. He gives us salvation as a gift because, and for the very reason of, we couldn't do consistently enough good things to actually be perfect. Now, if there was a perfect person in here, we would love to meet you. But far as I know, none of us are perfect. So we're thankful that God has chosen to give us a relationship with him by grace, just as a gift. He just says, you can have it as a gift. But don't I have to? No, no, it's a gift. But don't I have to? No, no, it's a gift. Then chapters six, seven, and eight deal with the fact that if it's a gift, then what's our motivation to actually behave right? I mean, why do we have to be moral people if God gives us a relationship with him and gives us our salvation as a gift. So what's the motivation to do what's right? And so six, seven, and eight were the power plant of grace. And that's where we learned about the spirit-filled life. And then 9, 10, 11, we talked about God's grace and his plan for Israel as a nation. These people to whom Jesus was revealed, Jesus was Jewish and he came through the Jews and yet they rejected him. And that all that was part of God's plan and that the gospel then went out to us as non-Jews. And ultimately, at the end of the story, everybody gets saved the same way. There's no favorites. God doesn't play favorites. Everybody gets saved the same way, not by everybody becoming Jewish, but by everybody believing, what, trusting what God said, which is faith. You hear what God says. He says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And we say, God, I believe it, and I'm going to call on you, and I don't have to become Jewish or Catholic or Baptist or Methodist or anything like that, I just become one of your children. Put whatever label on me you want, but I'm a Christian. I'm one of God's children. Now, having come through chapter 11, we enter in chapter 12. We turn a corner, we step out of the synagogue in Israel, which is 9, 10, and 11, and we step into the church house, the community. Here's where we live. This is where it gets really practical. 11 chapters of doctrine and big words like I mentioned before. And now chapter 12 gets insanely and intensely practical. What does it look like to be part of a spirit-filled, grace-filled church community? And that's what chapters 12 on through the end really kind of lay out for us. So we're only doing two verses today. I mean, we've been doing great big portions of scripture up until today. Today we have verses one and two and Although two short verses, packed with information, no trouble filling up our time with just discussing those two verses. I mean, if you were ever going to sit down to memorize a couple of verses in the Bible, these two are where I would start. So let's read them together, and then we'll discuss them. Chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So he starts out with, I beseech you, therefore, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. Well, it doesn't exactly say that, but it says brethren. So notice the first thing is it's plural. And a lot of the words here uses are plural. He's speaking to their community, to all of them. Everybody that's come in. Yes, it's individual, but he's saying to them as a group, as a family, as a church, as a team, he's saying, hey, I beseech all of you. Now, we don't use the word beseech too much, do we? When's the last time, parents, you said to, to your kids, I beseech thee, thou shalt not text whilst thy is driving. You, you don't say beseech, it's to beg, or really it means to call alongside, to call someone to your side. And every time I read the word beseech, I think of the coach in the locker room. And it's like the most important game, it's the Super Bowl, and it's halftime, and you're down by one touchdown. And so the coach calls the team, guys, come on in, come on in, guys. Everybody take a knee. And the coach begins to give that motivational speech. He wants to arouse something in them. He wants to call them to be something greater than what they feel that they could be. He wants them to rise to the occasion. He calls them alongside so we can encourage them. Hey, it's halftime. We're down. Look, you guys got to leave it all on the field. Leave it all on the field, guys. Come on, this is it. This is our chance. We can do this. And so he beseeches the church. He says, I'm begging you. He calls us around like a team. He says, hey, church, take a knee. Here's what God wants to tell you. And notice, he says, I beseech you. We're, we're going to get to what he tells you in a minute. He says, I beseech you, therefore, Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna. And he doesn't say, by the anger of God. I mean, that coach, God could say, hey, I beseech you. I beg you, church, because of God's anger and his great wrath, you better do this. I mean, if you don't do it, God's going to be really angry and he's not going to bless you and he's going to be upset and you're going to be in big trouble. Yeah, which is a lot of times how the beseeching happens, right? We beg you to be saved. You're going to spend eternity in hell. And that's not wrong. That's true. But don't you remember we read? It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. When people hear about the goodness of God and what God has done for them, now you can beg them to respond to the goodness of God. So too many times we lower the bar. We try to fear people into heaven, fear people into a relationship with God. And then all church becomes is fire insurance, but not Paul. He says, I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, not by the anger, not by the condemnation, not by the judgmentalism, although all that stuff is there, Paul wants to remind them because he's calling them to action and he's using and calling on the mercy of God. In what way is the mercy of God shown? And what are we supposed to think of when we read by the mercies of God? Well, you're supposed to remember that God made a way for us to be saved apart from our own behavior and abilities. That where we fell short, God saw that we fell short. He saw our inability. He saw our inconsistency. And he said, you know what? I'm going to step in and I'm just going to give it to him. I used to mow lawns when I was young. Anybody else cut lawns? The first job, cutting lawns, cutting grass. We had this little three-guy team of lawnmowers and we'd show up with our lawnmowers and tear up that yard. I mean, we tore it up. And this one guy my friend, he just ran over the guy's newspaper with a lawnmower and just right over the newspaper, newspaper clippings everywhere. It was terrible. Notice I said my friend, not me. It wasn't me. Well, the guy paid us for the job, right? Because we didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it because we just made his lawn more of a mess than it was. But he just gave it to us as a gift. And God says, you know, we've been running over people, running over things. You know, we just missed the mark. And so God said, you know what? 
because I'm merciful, because I love you, because of the great love I have for you. I'm going to give you what you could never earn just as a gift. Just take it. That's part of the mercy of God, isn't it? The other part of the mercy of God I think about is that because of his mercy, I was dead in my sins and trespasses. I had no life. I was on death row. I was spiritually dead, incapable of doing anything spiritually or eternally significant. It's as if I was behind bars, on death row, just waiting for judgment to come. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, steps in. And because of his great mercy, he rescues me. He, He puts the key in the lock, opens the prison door, says, Steve, you're free. How can I go free? Because my son is going to come and he's going to fulfill the punishment that you were meant to have. So I can leave that courthouse, but not only that, leave that prison, but not only that, he then adopts me, takes me into his family. That's how merciful, that's how good he is. Not only does he set me free, he gives me a new family, gives me a fresh start, makes me a new person. That's the mercies of God. And he says, if that's true, if that's true about God, then he tells us, what he's going to beseech us to do. What is it? He says, I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Your bodies. I beseech you. If it's not about works, if it's not about performance, then why would anybody behave right? What's our motivation to do the right thing? What's our motivation to love God, love our neighbor? It's the mercies of God. And then on top of that, we then are called to present our body a living sacrifice. If you got a church filled with people who present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God, I think you got something pretty special. They would understand what Paul was speaking of. Many say this deals with or refers to the burnt offering that the Jews would have been familiar with. A number of different offerings in the Old Testament, the sin offering and the peace offering and the thanksgiving offering and all those kind of things. But the burnt offering, the burnt offering was unique. First of all, it was voluntary. When you came to bring your burnt offering It was just something from your heart. You said, you know, I just want to give something to God. And the burnt offering was different in that some of the other offerings, you would give part of it to God on the altar, but then the priest would take part. And then you would take part and you'd have a meal there with your family at the tabernacle. You got some, the priest got some, and God got some. But not so with the burnt offering. With the burnt offering, the entire animal, the entire offering was put onto the altar And the entire thing then was transformed into smoke. The fire would transform the animal into smoke that would have a beautiful, pleasing smell, a sweet aroma to the Lord. It would go up to him. And so that's what Paul is referring to as voluntary and it was complete. And so he says to you and I, he says, I beg you, come on team, present your body a living sacrifice. See, Jesus was the ultimate example of that, right? He came to earth, took on the likeness of human flesh, like the likeness of a human being. Matter of fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 10, I believe it is, he quotes from the Psalms regarding Jesus. It says, offerings and sacrifices you don't delight. That's not what you're concerned with. Offerings and sacrifices, that's not what you delight in. But a body you have given me, speaking of Jesus, that ultimately, and it says, that I could do your will, to do your will, O oh God. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, just like Jesus. It was when he was taken to the cross, a living sacrifice. His life, his whole life consumed with whatever God wanted him to do, that's what he would do. Whatever God wanted him to say, that's what he would say. And then he was crucified. But did he stay dead? 
No, he came back to life. So he was, in a sense, a living sacrifice. And that resurrected life is what Paul wants you to experience. Because that animal never got off the altar. But you and I, we present our bodies a living sacrifice. So we're giving our lives to God, but we live. So we have this life to live. But yet it's a new life. It's a resurrected life. Think about where we are as a culture with our bodies. I mean, we are very focused on the bodies. Some of us more time in the mirror than in the book, right? We're very focused on body. This whole generation really bodily focused. Have you seen a rise in the number of tattooed people you see? Again, I'm not condemning. I'm just observing. I go to the gym or around town or wherever I go. You know, I see everybody's got tattoos now. I think, I wonder why that is. You know, again, not making a judgment, just saying, why, what is this fascination with decorating my earth suit? I mean, like this body's not me. Are you your body? Your body is not you. Tell me you've discovered that. Guys go to war, they lose a limb. Are they still them? Yeah, they're still them. Lose two limbs, three limbs. It's still you. You are the you who dwells inside of this body. And the body is just kind of your earth interface. Your body is how you interface with the things around you, the senses and things you sense in the world. But it's not you. So we struggle, I think, to know what is the purpose of this body? So I think when we get bored of the body, we color it and pierce it. America leads the world in Botox injections. We inject bacteria into our bodies. Believe me, I looked up some things on the website. I don't want to see them. I got to scrub my brain because of what I saw. Body modification stuff, piercings, this, people transforming themselves into animals by having their teeth sharpened and everything pierced. I mean, it was disgusting and grotesque. I guess that is judgmental. Uh, But it was just weird. I don't know. But that's what happens when we present our bodies for pleasure or for glory or to impress those around us. We present our bodies, you know, we get nipped and tucked and plastic surgery is through the roof. We're even ahead of Brazil in plastic surgeries. So I think we struggle with this recognition that we got this body and we're not really sure what to do with it. So we paint on it, draw on it and get bored of it. And then it starts to get older. It starts to fall apart. So we got to have new pieces put in and, and I'm with you on all that. But Paul says, look, I'm going to reveal a little secret. Let me tell you what your body was really designed for. Let me tell you the real purpose of your body. God gives you a body so you can give it back to him in worship. That's why God gave your body. All the other stuff is irrelevant. God doesn't care about what you look like on the outside. He doesn't see your tattoos. You can get tattoos and says, oh, I love Jesus. That's fine. But does your heart say that? It's easy to put it on your arm. Harder to live it with your life. And so you got to think about, what am I doing with my body? Do When you present your body a living sacrifice, that changes everything. This body, I take it to work every day. But my body is not made for work. My body's made for the Lord. And then when I give my body to the Lord, it changes the way I work. Present my body a living sacrifice. That raises the bar. You know, that raises the bar for what worship is. That's what he says. Present my body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. Because you might say, well, does God really want this body? I mean, some of us are ashamed of our bodies. Some are a little too proud of our bodies. So we've got this body and we say, well, maybe I've been living pretty hard. You know, I've been doing drugs, been drinking, been doing whatever. I don't think God would want my body. I don't think he wants me. You see, because that's what he says, holy and acceptable to God. If you bring your body to the Lord, you may be ashamed of it. You may not think God wants it. 
but you bring it by faith, that's what makes something acceptable to God, by faith. Remember Cain and Abel both brought their sacrifices to God? Abel's was accepted, Cain's was rejected. Why? Because Abel brought his by faith. And God said to Cain, back there in the book of Genesis, chapter 4, Cain was all downcast and discouraged because God had rejected his sacrifice. And God said to Cain, don't you know, Cain, that if you do right, that you'll be accepted? But now sin is crouching at your door. If you do right, you bring it by faith, you bring based on trust between us, then it'll be accepted. Who cares how you lived yesterday, last week? Today, God is asking you to do something different. He's asking you to make a choice. That today, and by the way, it's in the aorist tense, which means it's something you do once and it has a lasting impact. The minute you say, my life is not my own, I was bought with a price, God, I'm giving you this body. Do with it what you will. When I work, it's for you. When I play, it's for you. What I watch is for you. What I sing is for you. It's your body. It's as if Jesus, and he does, takes up residence in your body, becomes his. It's like a body snatcher kind of thing going on. Holy and acceptable. You know, so much worry about beauty in our bodies and making our bodies beautiful. Can I tell you something? In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, there's a verse that talks about the beauty of holiness. The beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Jesus wasn't very much to look at. Did you know that? There was no form or comeliness that you would desire him. He wasn't the guy that when he walked to the church, everyone went, look at that guy. He is handsome. He's like an actor. Wasn't like that at all. You wouldn't pick him out of a crowd. He would blend in. But I believe what would have made him so attractive to people is holiness. You want to do your kids a service? You want to do each other a service? Don't commend one another for the way we look, what you wore to church today, all that. Commend one another for the beauty of holiness you see in a person's life. You have daughters. Talk to them about the beauty of holiness. Holiness is a beautiful thing. Separated for God. A girl who is separated to God is a beautiful girl. A guy who is separated to God, beautiful. So you're saying, God, I need transformation in my life. I need a change. And you're expecting God to do it apart from you. And God says, no, no, I'm going to do it through you. And I can't do it unless you give me your body. Because that's where you interface with the world and with other people. Present your bodies, living sacrifice. And then he says, this is your reasonable service. This is the reasonable thing to do. Being a Christian doesn't mean you got to check your brain at the door. Being religious sometimes does. But being a Christian doesn't. He says, based on what we've just talked about, based on the last 11 chapters and all the goodness of God, it's just logical. And that's the word reasonable is the Greek word where we get logical. It's just logical to give yourself to the Lord. That's your logical worship. There's a lot of illogical worship out there. Things we call worship. But it doesn't make sense. Other religions, other things. We were in Florida a number of years ago and got to join my in-laws for a communion service at their church. And it was uh, not something I'm very familiar with. We're used to like low church, not a whole lot of ritual. And so we go into this church and I did not get the memo about all the hand signals I have to know to take communion. Now, again, I'm not knocking. I'm just sharing a story that sometimes we can get lost up in our rituals, that the rituals are done all just the right way or otherwise you're going to make God mad. Anybody ever felt that way? Like you get this pressure in church, like I don't know what's expected of me. And if I make a misstep, then all of a sudden heaven is going to come crashing down on me, you know, like God is going to get me. And so we go to this communion service and everybody's coming up row by row and everybody kneels. 
and the priest is there. And I didn't know that if you stick your tongue out, not at the priest, then he'll put it on your tongue and you can eat it that way. This is the wafer that you use for communion. But if you don't want him to put it in your mouth, then you just put your hand out like that. And then he'll put it in your hand and then you can eat it yourself. And then if you don't want to take communion at all, you got to do this thing. And that tells him. So there's all these hand signals. I felt like I was trying to steal third base. But please understand, I'm not knocking these rituals and things that we do. There's meaning to them. But sometimes we get confused into thinking that the ritual, somehow doing the ritual the right way is what secures our blessing. You remember the Sunday that I did communion backwards here, right? We drank the cup first and then we did the bread and people looked at me like, is that okay? Can we do that? Does it still work if we do it like that? You miss the meaning. We get stuck in a ritual. So there's some things that we call worship that just sometimes don't make any sense. Because tradition and we're just going through the motions and we don't stop to ask, why are we doing this? And so much of what we do just lurks back to a past which is no longer present. It's no longer the situation. We don't need to do it that way anymore because things have changed. But he says that the one thing that is timeless and the core and the center of what worship really is, is not what you do, but who you are. The word service, or also translated worship, because it means the thing to which a person dedicates their life. And it was used in reference to serving the gods. So there's that thing, he says, the logical to dedicate your life to God because of his mercies and all that he's done for you. He took the bullet for you, as it were. He died in your place. It's the logical thing. I didn't have a life. So therefore, the life that you've given me, I don't want to use it for my purposes and my ends and fulfilling my desires of my body. I want to use it to bring you glory. And that's what worship is. We have a lot of things we call worship. But if that's missing, then you haven't worshiped. I doesn't care if you've raised your hands and enjoyed the music and sang the words, you haven't worshiped. But if you give your body to the Lord, then everything you do becomes an act of worship. The way you program computers, the way you do your accounting, the way you teach the kids in the classroom, at the school, the way you do whatever it is that you do. Now, that's what he's saying. Look, here's where it starts. I've already done what I can do. Now, if you want to get on board, if you want to see things happen in your life, you've got to present yourself. You do it once, and then you just make that decision. Now, verse 2 says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So that's the next part. Now he says, there's a problem that we also have to overcome, and that's the challenge of the world having this mold that they try to plow us and pour us into how many jello lovers are out there? Any guys like jello? Red? What kind do you like? Green? Oh man, God's not approving of that. <laughs> Definitely. God is a red jello God. No. When our kids were little, they loved jello. And but we had these little molds that we would make the jello up and it's all hot and liquidy. And then you pour it into the molds, put it in the fridge. And they liked, like Jacob loved his race cars. Don't tell him I said that. He's going to be so embarrassed. He liked the race cars. And so we had these little jello molds and then we'd put them in the freezer and they would become, they would get molded and formed into that, whatever the mold was. The jello was still jello, but it just changed the shape of it. It didn't change the character of it, didn't change the essence of jello. Put it whatever shape you want, it still tastes the same. All it did was change the outward form. And so Paul is saying, here's a problem because challenging you for presenting your body to God is a world that says, no, 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 no. We want to tell you what pattern you're supposed to fit into. 
we want to dictate what you do with your body. And that's all the world can do is dictate what you do with your body. It's all external. The word really comes from the word where we get schematic or the scheme of the world, the age, the culture. Just did a little research on this. And again, it's not something that's going to surprise you, but it's an alarming increase in the number of eating disorders, especially among women, but men also falling into this. Alarming. And it's no wonder because the world gives them an image of beauty, gives women an image of beauty. You're not valuable. You're not worth anything unless you look like this. And then they give them an unreachable ideal to worship. It is unreachable. It is photoshopped and it is anorexic and it is damaging. But the world is saying, hey, girls, you want to be pretty? You want to be beautiful? All you are is how you look. And therefore, here's what you got to look like if you want people to like you, if you want to be accepted, if you want to be worthwhile. And then they set them up to fail. So again, I say, look, we got to, as a church, we got to make sure we're valuing the right things. We got to make sure we're placing our values don't come from what the world says is valuable. Now look, this is the fashion industry. The fashion is made to become obsolete. You know that, right? And now it's happening faster than ever. Having a conversation about this after first service, that fashion becomes obsolete. It used to be, yes, they roll out the spring line and the fall line of clothes. And, but now it's five seasons of clothes that you can buy and always got to change and keep up with the fashions. And, and I don't know where the whole thing with the pants down to the thighs. It's illogical. So the world tells us you got to wear these certain kind of shoes or you got to wear your pants down here. Guys at the gas station walking like this, you know, because the pants don't fall down. But hey, that's fashion, right? We call that fashion and I want to be accepted. And again, I'm not knocking. Look, you're talking to a guy who wore one glove to middle school because Michael Jackson wore one glove. Any other one glovers out there? I'm there. I mean, I wore one glove and parachute pants and I thought that was cool. At the time, it compared to everybody else, it was cool. That's what we did. So I'm right there with you. You get sucked in to these things, the fashions of the world. Do you ever wonder why you care? Just that deep need we have to be accepted. That deep need we have to fit in and to be liked. And in church setting, we love each other. Doesn't matter what color your skin is or how outdated your fashion is. Well, I talk to people and when I start to talk to them about church, their first picture they get is that they got to have the right kind of clothes. See, because we can be conformed to the image of the world or we do the opposite, maybe worse sin is then we say, well, don't be like the world, but now you got to conform to the image of the church. See, the church is going to set up an image and you got to wear this kind of thing. You got to wear that kind of thing. You got to carry this kind of Bible. You got to do everything just right. Then we'll accept you. No, 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 no. It's great. We got people in here that wear suits and we got people in here that have been wearing the same clothes for a week. That's true. And that's okay. Because you know what? We're not like the world. You don't have to become something to be loved by God. God does not play favorites. And when I talk to people and I can see the fear that if I'm going to come to church, everybody's going to look the same. All the girls are going to have on nice dresses and nice hats. and All the guys are going to be in suits with a tie. And I don't have a suit and tie. And I can't come. And I'm so glad that we have the freedom to recognize that God does not looking at what we wear on the outside. You wear what you're comfortable with, wear what you feel like. Know that God is looking at the heart. And know that when we come in here, it's so great to have a place where we can invite people. Just come as you are. Come bring that old body of yours into this church house. Watch God do a work. Amen, church? Amen. Don't be conformed to this world. 
don't get stuffed into that jello mold that the world is trying to create for us. That you need to drive this kind of car. You need to wear that kind of clothes. You need to have that kind of fashion. You need skinny jeans. And there's a pattern for pastors too. Pastors fall into that. I'm going to be a pastor. I got to look like this. Nonsense. One more thing. To be conformed, that's a reflexive verb. That means it's something you do yourself. Stop. And it literally would say, stop conforming yourself to what the world says you should be. Let your identity not be in the world, but be in God. It'll solve all of your problems. You get your identity sorted out. You present yourself to God as his servant. The addictions will start to go away. The anxieties will start to go away. The food issues will start to go away. Why? Because your identity is secure in Christ. And here's what happens. Watch what he says. But be transformed. That's the word where we get metamorphosis. A metamorphosis happens. Not an external change, not an outward thing, but an inward change. The inside changes. Be transformed. And that's passive, which means it's something that happens to you. You present your body as a living sacrifice. You stop conforming yourself to the world. Then what will happen to you is you will find transformation happening to you. All by itself. Just begins to happen. Now, how does it happen? He says it happens by the renewing of your mind. Now, I think that is fascinating. I think that is awesome because a lot of times, church, we've lowered the bar. The preaching and the word has been put aside for great music. And again, I'm not opposed to great music. I'm not opposed to good, exciting worship music. But you have this emotional experience and then you leave feeling on a high, but then what happens to the high? It goes away. Life happens. And because the music hasn't necessarily, unless you've been paying attention to the words, the music hasn't touched your heart, touched, touched your mind. So then you need another emotional experience. You've got to find another emotional high because it's all outward. It's all temporary stuff. And so you don't find lasting change apart from the renewing of the mind, the mind that is set on thinking about what God thinks about. Thinking about your anxiety like God thinks about your anxiety. Thinking about your money like God thinks about your money. Now all of a sudden, you got new perspective on things. Now all of a sudden your mind is changing and because your mind is changing, your life is changing. Neuroplasticity. Any other science geeks out there? Yeah, neuroplasticity. Neuro meaning your neurons or your mind. Plasticity meaning moldable. Now what I get psyched about is that Paul, through the Holy Spirit, recognizes the neuroplasticity of the mind way back 2,000 years ago. He didn't have CAT scans to do studies. But he sees that, number one, it's possible to change your mind. Number two, you need to change your mind. It has to change. That's what you needed. Wasn't that you needed a better worship experience? Wasn't that you needed a better children's program and all those things? You needed a change of mind. You needed to be rewired, reprogrammed. Now, neuroplasticity is interesting to me, and here's why. I'll read you a couple of quick quotes, and then we'll finish up. This guy said, after 22 years and 83,000 brain scans, the single most important lesson my colleagues and I have learned is that you can literally change people's brains. And when you do, you change their life. You are not stuck with the brain you have. Another quote, the discovery of neuroplasticity that our thoughts can change the structure and function of our brains, even into old age, is the most important breakthrough in our understanding of the brain in 400 years. Hey, hello, Paul knew it 2,000 years ago. Could ask him, and I could go on with quotes. And the reason I mention these things is because your brain is not just neutral. 
Your brain is always seeking to understand, seeking information, and the world is filling it for you. The hours we spend on the internet are not neutral hours. They are changing the way you think. I've challenged people about Facebook. Again, you guys know where I stand about Facebook. Facebook is a tool like any other tool, but what you have to admit is that all of the studies done show that when people get off of Facebook, they feel more depressed because you're comparing yourself to what everybody puts out there is their beautiful life. And you're going, man, my life stinks compared to them. She's the perfect mom. He's the perfect dad. Look at the perfect marriage they have. And then you feel crummy about yourself. It starts to rewire your brain to feel crummy. And then we wonder why we're hypermedicated and on all kinds of things to try to make us feel good, why there's so many addictions going on. Again, don't hear your pastor saying, get off of Facebook. Just hear your pastor say, these things we engage with, they change our minds. In the same way that when you pick up the word of God and you read, it changes your mind. When you come by faith, it has an effect on you. They've showed that even picturing a musical instrument even without you playing it. Because you know, neuroplasticity is what enables you to not have a clue how to play an instrument. Then you pick it up, you start practicing for a while, and then you get better at it, right? That's because your brain is rewiring and making those pathways more secure and easier to follow. Even thinking about playing an instrument, even if you don't play it, imagine yourself right now playing the guitar. Close your eyes. Imagine yourself playing the guitar. Right now, you are changing your brain. Even just thinking about that is forming new pathways in your brain. And if that's so powerful, then wouldn't I want to tap in to the mental health that's available to me through the reading of the Word of God by having my mind renewed by God? Imagine the power of prayer, not just to accomplish God's will, but to change the way you think. It's unfathomable. The truths of God's Word, oh, the riches and the depths. So when that begins to happen, see, the world is filled with anxieties, filled with selfishness. The way of the world is me first. The way of God is Christ first. The way of the world is my rights above all else and my needs above all else. The way of the church is your needs, God's needs above my own. It changes the way you think. And if you live that life, this is what he says as he closes out here. He says, you'll be transformed. You'll find yourself becoming a new person by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. How many of you have ever said, I want to know what God's will is for my life? You ever said that? I want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, you will never find out unless you present your body a living sacrifice. Stop being conformed to the world. Let yourself be transformed by God spending time in community, spending time in prayer, spending time in the Word, and then all of a sudden, you will see God's will becoming evident in your life without you even realizing it's happening. Because we read, how am I supposed to rejoice at all times? I can't do that. No, not if you're being conformed to the world, you can't. But you will find yourself realizing and experiencing the truths you thought were unexperienceable. The truths you thought were for somebody else, they're for you. They're for you, the peace of God, the love of God, the joy of the Lord are all for you, but only can ever be fully realized right here as you present your body living sacrifice. Isn't that cool? If you got to memorize a passage of scripture, let it be this one. 